Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. One of the interesting evolutions we've seen during the last 25 years as we've gathered with community and spent time with so many authors, educators and artists is the rise in a kind of intersectional thinking that recognizes how interconnected all our struggles really are. There's a growing sense that when it comes to human rights, indigenous sovereignty, the environment, the economy, gender, class, race, that all of it is really one fight, one struggle for fairness, for prosperity, for equity. Acclaimed globally for his remarkable fiction, translated into dozens of languages and celebrated around the world, Amitabh Ghosh is also a master of the essay of well-researched and thoughtful nonfiction, including The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and The Unthinkable from 2019, and The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, published last fall. In this nonfiction, Amitav looks at our planetary crisis as the culmination of events that began with the discovery of the New World and the sea route to the Indian Ocean. The story of the nutmeg is a parable for a crisis that encompasses climate change and what he calls the terraforming of our planet, a crisis whose political dynamics are rooted in the centuries-old geopolitical order constructed by Western colonialism. He writes... In this, too, the tiny, planet-shaped nut has something to teach us about the Earth. The nutmeg's travels and its strange career perfectly illustrate the loss of meaning that is produced by the vision of world as resource. To see the world in this way requires not just the physical subjugation of people and territory, but also a specific idea of conquest as a process of extraction. This is another legacy of European expansion and particularly of the settling of North America, which produced metaphors and imagery on a scale to match its violence. It's always an honor to host Amitav Ghosh. So here's my conversation with him on the Nutmeg's Curse. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you about this remarkable book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. And before I sort of jump down the rabbit hole, I'm thinking maybe the best best place for us to start is for you to tell me a little bit about um, where the book came from. How did you come up with the notion of of writing about the nutmeg as a as a, a way of looking at the state of the world today? Well, uh, you know, I have been uh, these ideas had been with me for a long time. Uh, but it was when I went to the Banda Islands uh, um, in 2016 uh, that uh, uh, really uh, the idea of doing something around, uh, you know, around that episode, uh, you know, that it occurred to me. Because before that, even though I knew something of the history of, uh, of the nutmeg, I didn't really know very much about the precise details. And it was uh, really when I went to the Banda Islands that, uh, you know, uh, I had a sense of what had happened there. And it was uh, incredibly eye-opening, you know. Uh, but even then, even when I left the Banda Islands in 2016, you know, the idea of writing a book in this particular way hadn't really occurred to me. Uh, it took many years after that, uh, you know, just thinking about all these uh, various uh, 
ideas, uh, all the all that's happening around us today. And then suddenly I began to see how the whole story of the nutmeg uh, tied it all together. And so maybe for, and you do talk about this uh, in the book, but maybe let's give people a little sense of what is unique about the island and, and, and the nutmeg's relationship with this one island? Like what, what makes it uh, so important? Well, uh, the Banda Archipelago is at the far eastern end of uh, Indonesia. Uh, it's actually really in the middle of absolutely nowhere. I mean, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing the, the, uh, close by except, say, the Timor, you know. Mm. Um, so these islands are really isolated. Uh, they're very far away. The, the nearest airport is uh, in an island called Ambon, which is, uh, it takes you about a day by, by boat to get from there to the Banda Islands. So, but these islands uh, were extraordinarily important in world history. And it's just a group of, uh, you know, six or seven islands. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tiny archipelago. In fact, most of the islands are just, uh, uh, you know, uh, little bits of the crater uh, of a sunken volcano, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're in a, in a kind of caldera, you know, they're grouped around a, uh, around a caldera. Uh, but these islands, their extraordinary importance arose from the fact that they had this astonishing tree. Uh, this, uh, this tree, uh, the nutmeg tree, you know, which gives us both nutmegs and mace. Uh, so very early on, uh, the Banda Islands became the center of the global nutmeg trade. And nutmegs as a spice were, and, uh, and mace were very, very important in the spice trade. So, you know, going back long before the, uh, the common era, uh, nutmegs were being traded uh, across the Mediterranean, across the Indian Ocean. Uh, they were being um, used in India, in China, in Africa. Uh, so, uh, especially in the in the late Middle Ages, uh, nutmegs became so expensive uh, in Europe uh, that you could literally buy a house or a ship with just a handful of nutmeg. In this period, uh, the spice trade in Europe was uh, was controlled uh, by the Venetian Republic, and they had a sort of monopoly of the nutmeg trade and you know all spices because spices then went from the Indian Ocean, uh, you know, through a kind of transit trade uh, via uh, the Middle East, various places in the Middle East, uh, to Venice, which then made enormous sums of money by selling uh, spices to the rest of Europe. Uh, this was uh, hugely resented by the Western uh, 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 maritime powers like Spain, uh, Portugal, and so on. And Spain and Portugal and so on were actually very keen to find uh, a different route to uh, the Spice Islands and generally to Asia, you know, to China, to India. Um, so uh, it, this was one of the uh, this was one of the prizes uh, that uh, lured uh, the uh, early navigators to set off on their great voyages of so-called discovery. And very soon after Vasco da Gama found his way into the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese uh, arrived uh, at the shores of the Banda Islands. Uh, now, what the Europeans really wanted to do was that they wanted to impose monopolies. Uh, on the islanders, uh, you know, they wanted to impose monopolies on uh, certain commodities. 
Now, obviously, uh, the, the Bandanese weren't uh, very happy about that and they resisted. But uh, finally, the power that became dominant in this region uh, was the Dutch. And the Dutch were very ruthless. And, uh, you know, they didn't like the, the Bandanese resisting their efforts to impose a monopoly. And in 1621, uh, the then Governor General uh, of the Dutch East Indies, a man called Jan Peterson Kuhn, uh, he led a fleet to the Banda Islands, and basically uh, he just uh, eliminated the entire population of the islands. Um, many were just killed outright. Uh, many were enslaved and taken to other islands. Uh, many died of starvation in the mountains. Uh, and a few managed to escape to other surrounding islands. So uh, really what happened there was a very early example of early modern genocides. And uh, similar, similar things were, of course, then happening in the Americas. Um, but in the case of the Banda Islands, uh, I think what, is, what was very important for me was that this was a very early example of the resource curse. You mm -hmm. know, and this resource curse is now essentially uh, hanging over this entire planet. And, and this is the notion that having access, uh, exclusive access in some cases to a specific product that everyone wants. Yes. We would think yes, in exactly. a market economy, this would be a boon. This would be the, the gift, this notion of when you have a resource that people want, it's not always good for the population that's there, right? Oh, no, it's absolutely disastrous. I mean, uh, you know, if we track the, the way that uh, modern capitalism has evolved, I mean, it's brought uh, disaster after disaster upon people uh, in so many places. If you think of the slaughter that was unleashed upon uh, the peoples of the Amazon because of rubber mm. uh, or of various other resources of various kinds in the Congo. I mean, the Congo, what, it's something like 11 million people were killed by the Belgians. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a completely ghastly story. I mean, in so many ways, the nutmeg's curse is as much about language as it is about economy or geography or history. And this is the first of what is at the time called a, a, a war of extinction. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what a war of extinction is? And uh, Well, it's actually uh, a war of extermination, you know. Uh, that's a term that comes very much into use uh, in the late 18th, uh, 19th centuries, uh, especially amongst Europeans, because uh, uh, especially amongst uh, Anglo-Americans, because uh, really Anglo-Americans had, uh, had fought many uh, wars of extermination by this period, you know, uh, especially in, uh, in North America. But the peculiar term that the term uh, uh, war of extermination uh, takes uh, in the 19th century is that it gets fused with, uh, uh, with ideas of evolution, you know, mm. so that it's thought to be inevitable and necessary uh, for certain peoples to be extinguished, you know, or exterminated. And I guess what's interesting is when we look back so much of contemporary history, at least history as I grew up learning it, is about pretending that these bad things didn't happen, or if they did happen, it was all with the best of intent. But one of the things that in throughout the nutmeg's curse that you really detail 
is that connection between an idea of progress and an idea of the kind of Western civilization and the necessity of extermination. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about how that idea of, uh, you know, we were just sort of leading into that now, but this, this notion of how the idea of progress led people that would otherwise be loving parents and good people to say, well, that there's a reason that the entire indigenous population of North America needs to die. There's a reason that everyone on the Banda Islands needs to, needs to move on. Just, it, it, it's interesting because in the history that you're talking about, the contemporary, in the contemporary record, people are pretty clear about what they're doing and why in a way that we're not anymore, right? We pretend that, well, genocide was just a, or the extermination of indigenous North Americans was just a byproduct of, we didn't know what we were doing, I guess. And you, you sort of, uh, you put an end to that kind of thinking in the nutmeg's curse by looking to the historical sources. And what do those sources tell you about wars of extermination, I guess, is what I'm asking. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, what happened in the Bandas was not a precursor to genocide, except that the mm. word genocide didn't exist. I mean, you know, <laughs> until uh, um, until the mid twentieth century. Mm-hmm. But uh, really, scholars uh, do describe it as a genocide. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there are scholars in uh, in genocide studies who are agreed that it was uh, an early genocide. Um, yes. So, as you said, uh, this notion of progress. Uh, it comes into being actually, it's first articulated uh, in the uh, mid 18th century uh, by a French economist. And it very quickly becomes uh, accepted into uh, general uh, European elite ideologies, uh, whereby they come to believe that all these horrible things that they they do uh, are meant for some higher purpose, uh, you know, and that they're, they're, they're going to create uh, a trajectory of history whereby uh, all this suffering uh, will lead to some kind of redemption, you know. Hmm. Uh, so they justify so many, I mean, it's not just what they do abroad. I mean, it's even what they do at home. I mean, you know, displacing peasants and, uh, you know, uh, stuff like that, enclosing, enclosing their lands and so on. So all of that comes to be, uh, 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 comes to be absorbed under the general, uh, general idea of progress. And, uh, what we also see is, uh, as the historian Priya Satya of Stanford has shown, uh, that uh, what happens in the late uh, 19th century is that suddenly uh, this discipline of history comes to be formalized, uh, especially of imperial history. And imperial history becomes all about, uh, you know, uh, progress. I mean, that mm. the British Empire is the carrier of progress and therefore it's, it's, uh, it's doing all these things. Um, it's a really kind of horrifying thing, actually, because, you know, apart from everything that they were doing in the, in the Americas, apart from even uh, enslavement of uh, millions and millions of, uh, of Africans, they were also, uh, you know, at that same time in the 19th century, in the most uh, appalling way, uh, selling, uh, selling opium to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. You know, which had uh, just uh, horrific ramifications in uh, throughout China, Chinese society. So, you know, this is the extraordinary thing. I think, in a way, if you look at what uh, the European project in the world becomes, 
uh, after the 16th century and the 17th century, when they're literally, you know, decimating the populations of the of the Americas and replacing those indigenous populations uh, with uh, African Americans, mm-hmm. enslaved African Americans. I mean, can you just imagine? I mean, the the magnitude of this of this idea. I mean. Uh, you just completely change the demographic makeup of uh, several continents. And yet the way we talk about it now, there is a kind of, I mean, especially on, on I mean, it, I don't want to, it's a very easy Canadian thing to look at what's happening in, in America and sort of uh, have a sense of superiority. And yet this, the same forces of white supremacy and colonialism are clearly at work here. I mean, we recently had, the uh, interim director of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on television say she didn't understand what the word systemic racism meant, <laughs> right? Where you're like, oh, wow, okay. One of the things that you're, you make very, very clear, the history is, is very clear as you read it, is that those involved in the colonial project knew what they were doing, right? And saw it as a, as a positive. They absolutely did. They absolutely did. Later, they tried to sort of create. See, whenever all these terrible things that, uh, you know, especially uh, the British did, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they would always uh, represent them in the passive voice as something that was bound to happen. Mm -hmm. So they found all these techniques of denying agency. You know, so they uh, they promoted this myth that, you know, disease was, uh, uh, was proceeding by itself. But in fact, they did everything they could uh, to speed the progress of disease amongst indigenous populations. You know, quite apart from the uh, from the smallpox blankets and the infected flags that they would give indigenous peoples, they also made sure that uh, you know indigenous peoples were often uh, sort of herded together in uh, in essentially camps where they knew that the disease would spread faster, and they wouldn't give them uh, you know the treatments that they had uh, on hand. Uh, I mean, there have been studies now which show that, in fact, uh, you know, this whole idea that it was immune deficiency that killed uh, indigenous peoples uh, is actually quite wrong. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, even naive populations uh, had certain levels of immunities. In fact, the epidemic spread amongst them. the way that epidemics uh, spread everywhere in the wake of horrific warfare, Uh, you know, just just as happened in 1918, you know, mm. uh, because of starvation and so on. These all become fertile uh, breeding grounds for uh, for disease. So that, that was one way in which they disclaimed uh, responsibility, even though they knew perfectly well what they were doing. Another way was, for example, in China, where they said, oh, no, no, it's not our fault. It's just uh, the laws of the market, <laughs> uh, you know, that opium is going there. So they had all these techniques for, as it were, you know, uh, sort of disclaiming agency. And that's actually what a lot of uh, these modern uh, disciplines, for example, economics, and it's uh, with this idea that, you know, the market uh, operates irrespective of human intention. These ideas uh, all have this in common. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. 
If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. And so we have, with Nutmeg, the beginning of a, of a certain approach to wealth, the beginning of a certain approach to power, to control, to a kind of renaming and reworking of the world in a, in a, in a European image. And, and this is one of the themes that runs so powerfully through the nutmeg's curse is the notion to which a lot of the stuff that's happening, we can't even see it anymore. Or I, this is what I feel as a reader because our language itself is kind of biased towards certain approaches. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the idea of a living world versus the idea of an inanimate world and, and how our language and our approach um, almost does, a, you know, you're saying on the one hand, we pretend that it's inevitable that uh, populations would be displaced and that the market is doing what it's doing. But I would, I guess, argue that if, if we believe in an inanimate world, then it is inevitable. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Right? Uh, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, Ben Ehrenreich, the writer, as he says, the first step towards making the world dead is to <laughs> imagine it as such. Mm. And that's essentially what happened in the 17th century when you have these European philosophers like Descartes and so on. Uh, basically, uh, you know, laying out... Uh, a philosophical system in which humans are the only uh, rational beings, they're the only ones uh, who have historical agency, uh, they're the only ones who, uh, well, of course, uh, uh, you know, they're the only ones who are capable of acting in the world. Mm. But the, the really interesting thing about this is that when Descartes and all uh, lay out these ideas, they don't actually mean all humans, you know? Because at the same time, they're also arguing uh, that uh, uh, non-white me uh, men uh, mm. are also incapable of agency, incapable of historical agency, incapable of rationality, that they're childlike, they're brutish, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very bizarre set of ideas that emerges right then, uh, you know, in Europe, where a, a very tiny minority of uh, elite men uh, decide that only they are capable of uh, are capable of rationality and agency. Yeah, and, and you just used the word you just used the word brutish, which I think either it's either in the Nutmeg's Curse or maybe it was the Great Derangement, your your previous book, where you spoke, you looked into that word, the idea of, of nature as a brute. Right? Uh, yes. Just maybe talk idea. a little bit about that. I, I'm not sure which book that was in, but it's in one of these two books. Uh, uh, the the idea of yeah, how how nature is framed. By these people, yeah, right? it's it's actually in the in the nutmeg's curse that I write okay. at, uh, at some length about the whole idea uh, of the brute. But basically, as far as as far as those uh, elite uh, uh, white men are concerned, uh, really, uh, the whole of the, the whole of the world consists mm -hmm. of brutes, apart from them, because also. Uh, poor European women are brutes, mm. uh, you know, or they're witches uh, who believe in, uh, you know, in the animateness of nature. Therefore, they too have to be exterminated. Uh, so, you know, that's the thinking behind these, uh, behind the witch craze, you know. So, uh, yeah, they represent, you know, 
all things in nature, as well as a large part of humanity as being essentially brutish, devoid of agency, devoid of reason, uh, and, uh, you know, devoid of history. And this idea that most of the world was devoid of history, uh, you know, was held until very recently. I mean, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, in the, uh, one of the greatest English historians of the time, uh, as late as the 1960s, uh, said Africa has no history. And in fact, that idea is actually preserved even today in departments of history uh, everywhere in the West. I mean, uh, if you go to any department of history, let's say Toronto or wherever, you'll see mm. that what I, I think it's like 80 to 85 percent of the history that's being taught there or researched there is about a few countries, basically America, England, Germany, Italy, Spain, you know. Yeah, and you, I mean, just to, I mean, to, don't want to belabor this point, but it's interesting. You talk also, I think, about the word massacre and yeah. the way, the way, I mean, again, even I've referred, I said, you know, sort of a proto-genocide. Well, this is 95% of the population of the Banda Islands are killed, right? And, and we look at in North America, uh, in the Americas writ large, 90 something percent of the population are killed after Europeans arrive through a whole variety yeah. of means. So, you know, and, and you talk, I think the word you're using, and I think it's an interesting one, is, you know, genocide would, is one thing, but the language that we use, our, our, our idea of the world is one that I think you're suggesting, and tell me if I'm wrong, but is omnicidal, leads to, in fact, the destruction of everything. Do you see that as, as a kind of an inevitable byproduct of our worldview? I mean, is that what has to change? Do we have to open ourselves up to different ways of seeing the world? You know, is this well, omnicidal, is, that, is, is it baked in? I think it's certainly become very much baked into a certain culture of modernity, you know, which really regards uh, the human as, uh, let's say, superhuman, you know, and the earth has something which is, uh, uh, what, what can I say, which is a completely denuded of meaning. You know, so I give that example of a couple of poems, one by Tennyson and one that other very famous poem about uh, fleeing the surly bonds of earth, uh, mm -hmm. you know, which is actually written by a Canadian uh, airman, uh, you know, in the mm -hmm. uh, First World War, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it was it's a, it's a remarkable thing because just imagine saying the surly bonds of earth. I mean, why is why why are the bonds of earth surly? What's wrong with the earth? Uh, you know, I mean, this is the only planet we have. It's given us everything we've got. Why should we think of it as surly? Mm. And yet that idea has become very deeply implanted uh, in contemporary Western culture. I mean, when, um, you know, Elon Musk, all these billionaires talk about, uh, you know, abandoning the earth and fleeing to some other planet, which they're going to terraform. Uh, that's basically what they have in mind. I mean, this, uh, this, this planet wasn't good enough for them. They want a planet that they can engineer, not realizing that in fact, what the disaster that has descended upon this planet is because of engineering. Yes, well, can we, let's maybe, I mean, talk a little bit. I, I, for me, the thing that is so, the thing that is really staying with me from, from this book and, and the, the great derangement as well is the notion to, to which 
my language and my culture has blinded me to essential facts about everything. And so maybe you, you talk beautifully in the nutmegs curse about the Bondanese approach to, you know, history and, and its relationship with the volcano and with the land. And, and you suggest that that is true of most indigenous cultures, uh, that there is a, an approach and, and that our, a kind of a more European approach has been one that, that has a timeline, that time is the one constant, whereas for the Bondanese, it, the land is the constant. Can you maybe talk about those, that difference and, and, and how that ties into our, our worldview? Uh, yeah, sure. It's not just for the Bandanese. Uh, you know, for uh, most indigenous peoples, uh, really space is the great uh, uh, category to which they orient their thought. I mean, you know, space has meaning. Uh, spaces have meaning. And this is true also within Western uh, uh, Christian culture. I mean, Jerusalem has a very powerful meaning mm. uh, for um, uh, for European Christians, for example. Uh, similarly, let's say Westminster Cathedral has a very important meaning. But when they venture out into, uh, into, into the colonized territories, for them, these territories fundamentally have no meaning in their, on their own. Mm. That's why they're trying to remake the territories, to remake them physically in the sense of transforming the landscapes and to remake their meaning. So that's why all these places come to be named, uh, you know, New London, uh, <laughs> New York, uh, New Amsterdam, and so New on Delhi. and so forth, because uh, that's the whole idea that you remake this entire conquered landscape uh, in, the, in the image of, um, of your own land. And uh, that's also when you start remaking the physical landscape uh, in the image of Europe uh, so that it can, uh, it can support European lifestyles. Now, one of the things you, you, in in talking about the nutmeg, you're talking about you know a, a spice that is certainly I don't think many of us spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, you certainly cannot buy a house in Manhattan with three nutmegs today. <laughs> it, it doesn't hold the same place, and yet you're arguing, I think, quite compellingly that we're still in the same paradigm that our relationship with energy is essentially the same as our relationship with nutmeg was, right? And, and, and can you maybe talk a little bit about just our, the ways in which we, we think we're modern man is separate. The economy is its own thing. It is not connected to the biosphere, right? In, in the way we talk yeah. about it, the economy has a mind of its own. It's just, that's the economy speaking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. You know, I think uh, if you go out in the streets of uh, whether it be Toronto and New York and say, what is your relationship with the biosphere? Uh, people will laugh and say, oh, well, I go to the park sometimes and I, mm. I have no other sort of connection with it. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, we are now completely dependent upon the biosphere in ways in which even our ancestors weren't. Because every single thing we do uh, depends on, uh, on energy. And uh, the vast bulk of this energy, 80% or is it 90% or whatever, mm. uh, comes, from, uh, comes from fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are nothing other than uh, fossilized botanical matter, you know, just as the nutmeg was botanical matter. You know? So, you know, botanical matter rules our lives completely to this day. And yet people seem to be so oblivious to that fact. So that, uh, you know, they treat 
uh, the, uh, this matter as inexhaustible, as though it has no, uh, as though it has no consequences uh, for the world around us, as though burning it were to have no consequences mm. for the world around us. So all of that is really comes from this bizarre mindset where people think that they're, uh, you know, that they have no connection with the biosphere. And then, and that, of course, also leads to. I think there's some beautiful writing about migration and the notion of what is there any migration anywhere on Earth right now that is not, if you scratch the surface, climate migration. Yeah, but I have, uh, you know, as I say in the book, I, I think climate migration is a rather reductive category, you know, because right. if you actually speak to migrants, uh, actually they're responding to something which is uh, much broader. And I think that's really the problem with always uh, putting climate in a separate box. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what we are going through is a much, uh, much larger planetary crisis, you know. Uh, which touches upon every aspect of our lives. And so what, can uh, as, you, what as, is that crisis? Can we define that? What, what it sort of... Well, as Margaret Atwood famously said, uh, you know, it's not just climate change, it's everything change. Mm -hmm. So I prefer not to talk about climate change. I prefer to talk about a planetary crisis because I think migration, uh, escalating greenhouse gas emissions, these are all aspects of the same thing, which is a relentless... In, uh, acceleration in our modes of living. Absolutely. And so I guess the question I'm left with it, it is we recognize now that the same patterns have been in place. So you, I mean, and, and in the book, you, you look in ways that I have certainly, I have never seen anywhere else and I have never made the connections myself, but, but why certain, why certain parts of the world are still were important back in the days of the spice trade and are still important in the 21st century. Why um, certain sea channels matter, yeah. um, and why the American military, why 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 certain things that that would seem if you know if if we if if our notion of the modern world is being divorced from the planet uh, from the biosphere we're, we're in any way believable we obviously wouldn't have the same priorities that we do in terms of where we put military bases where we are focused where the wars are happening right so yeah exactly yeah in that sense i, I think the planetary crisis is uh, inseparable from uh, the the geopolitical order of the uh, of the world and it's perfectly clear that the planetary crisis is now uh, going to manifest itself increasingly in violence of many kinds, violence towards migrants, for example, but most of all now in war. Uh, mm. I mean, it's uncanny the degree to which, uh, you know, uh, what I said in the nutmeg's curse is coming true in front mm -hmm. of our eyes. I mean, you know, with this war in, uh, in Europe. So I guess, I mean, the, the, the question I wanted to just end our conversation with would be, is there, when you looked at, at, at the various indigenous cultures, when you looked at the, the way the Bondanese lived and, and their notions of, of kinds of holistic, of language, um, language that understands life as a kind of dynamic interaction with other life versus language that sees things as living or dead and resources to be exploited, is, is there a lesson that, that you learned from the Bandanese from looking there that, that might be our way forward? Or is that too reductive a, a kind, of, kind of a question? Are there things that we have 
put aside that we need to remember, I guess, is what I'm asking. Are there, are there things that you learned when you were looking at, at the history of, of the pre, pre-colonial, I guess, interactions and, and, and markets? Certainly, the, it's not just capitalism that is the problem because the, the market for nutmeg existed long before colonialism came, right? So, so mm. what is it that we've lost that is that is inherent in 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 older wisdoms and, and and older languages? I guess is my question. Well, I think the first thing that uh, uh, that's important is that uh, even though people have always traded, uh, uh, the objects in which they were traded were never completely devoid of meaning. You know. Uh, so for the Bandanese, for example, they traded the nutmegs, but they also sang songs about the nutmeg. They told stories about nutmeg. For them, the nutmeg was not a dead thing. It was a, it was a live presence in their world. And to the remnants of the Bandan, Banda population, that is still true. Whereas, you know, the places where the nutmeg was taken, like Barbados and so on, they don't sing songs about the nutmeg because the nutmeg is not, you know, it's, it's not a part of their world. I mean, the, the nutmeg was transported there through the, these plantation economies and so on. But I think uh, to answer your broader question, a, a, a big change is underway in the ways in which people look at the world, I think. Uh, you know, we see the rise of all these uh, uh, ecocentric religions, uh, even in uh, North America. Uh, we see, for example, indigenous peoples leading more and more environmental movements in which uh, they cite the sacredness of the land as a major plank of the movement. So I think the, uh, these changes are already underway. And I think that's an entirely positive thing. Well, that's an optimistic note to end it on. I want to thank you so much for the, for the gift that is the Nutmeg's Curse. And Again, it's the beauty of, of working in, in books and literature that, that we're selling something that has a life and that is talked about and that is not just a widget or a, a, you know something yes. that we can just throw at the market and, and leave it behind. But there's so much here and, and uh, I do hope um, people rush out and, and pick it up. So Amitav, thank, thank you so you much for much, the time today. Thank you very much, Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That was my conversation with Amitav Ghosh about his stunning book, the Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.